Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week we've got a new movie in theaters that might have the most impressive cast ever assembled from one of Jeff's favorite directors. Plus, Jeff Braun, the secret invasion has begun. I'll take a look at the latest Disney Plus offering from the MCU. And last week was the preview. This week it's the review of Extraction 2. But first, The Flash limped into theaters this past week. I went to go see it anyways, and I was kind of impressed. I went back in time to save my mom. And I completely destroyed history. You changed the future. You changed the past. The Flash has made $140 million worldwide, $66 million in North America in the first week that it's been in theaters. And by superhero movie standards, that is pretty, pretty, pretty bad. So The Flash, technically, I guess we're calling it a bomb. And there are a lot of things wrong with the movie. There's a lot of iffy CGI. There's a story that didn't make a ton of sense plot-wise. And a lead actor who is not terribly likable in real life. But there are a lot of things right with the movie, too. I mean, that unlikable actor is good at his job and uh, creates a couple of likable characters in the movie. The emotional through line of the story is also great. And then, of course, there's a lot of fan service stuff, which is uh, there's heavy, like there's a ton of it, and it's often effective. I won't spoil it because you kind of need to see it to believe it. So I would say try to avoid those spoilers, even if you don't plan to see it until it's streaming. Don't go uh, reading a bunch of stuff about Flash without be, uh, being careful about that sort of thing. Uh, and again, with fan service stuff, uh, it can feel like a cheapest holiday form of entertainment, but it can also be thrilling, and this movie probably has a little bit of both. Um, the main form of that fan service that we all knew would be in the movie, of course, is Michael Keaton as Batman, and it's also the best part of The Flash. Um, to get to him, we got to start at the beginning, I guess. I don't know if I could actually even describe the plot if I wanted to. We'll just say that there's a young Flash, uh, Barry Allen, not as a kid, just as we know him, but he's younger than most of the other Justice Leaguers, is always on the quest to uh, prove that his imprisoned dad is innocent of the crime of which he's accused, that being the murder of Flash's mother, his dad's wife. In the quest, he runs really fast, and he ends up in another reality. The term multiverse is bandied about. It's kind of different, though, than the way the MCU has been doing the multiverse, I think. Uh, in this other universe or timeline, reality, dimension, whatever you want to call it, he finds another Barry Allen, another Flash, and together they need to fight Zod, who we saw back in uh, Man of Steel 10 or 11 years ago. And, you know, he's somehow his original Barry needs to get back home and for this they need help so Barry goes to Wayne Manor and a shock to find that in this place Michael Keaton is Batman not Ben Affleck Affleck does show up at the beginning of the movie before stuff really gets going there's this uh, kind of a terrific opening action scene with Batman and the Flash the Keaton Batman begrudgingly joins the Flashes and they all soon team up with Supergirl as we saw in the trailer and they go to fight Zod again played by Michael Shannon Zod does not get a lot of screen time or have a ton to do kind of to the point where I'm not even sure I'd call him the bad guy of this movie uh it's kind of weird like that it's 
probably mostly a failing of the movie's structure, just the way they built this movie, but it is kind of nice to have something different story-wise, not have to sit through the backstory of some random villain like we've done so many, so many, so many times over the last 15, 20 years. The ending, pretty satisfying as far as the Flash stuff is concerned. The final scene was actually kind of perfect. The fate of a couple of characters I found irritating, so I wouldn't say it's a great ending. There is also a post-credit scene that normally would be a highlight in a movie like this, but again, after all the fan service stuff that comes before it, uh, the post-credit scene kind of felt like a waste of time. There's a lot of humor in the movie, maybe the most of any of these DCEU movies. I laughed way more uh, during The Flash than I did during any of those Zack Snyder movies, obviously, and probably more than Shazam or Aquaman. And like I said, I love seeing Michael Keaton as Batman and Bruce Wayne again. Just, just showing up would have been enough, but he actually seemed... Like the same guy from the old movies, which impressed me that Michael Keaton actually put in enough effort to try and recapture the character that he uh, didn't originally in 1989. It was kind of funny because thanks to modern filmmaking, uh, the 70-year-old Michael Keaton Batman is a lot more limber and flexible when he fights than he could in 1989. He's the only superhero, I guess, to get stronger with age. It's a miracle. Um, and then in the end, uh, you know, I will say I almost skipped this movie in theaters, but I think it's weirdly one of the better superhero movies of late that demands the big screen experience. Uh, you can see why instead of shunting it to streaming that Warner Brothers held out for a theatrical release despite all the setbacks and delays that plagued the production and given the ending i'll be interesting to see how or if aquaman 2 even addresses it later this year and i believe that'll actually be the end of the dcu as we've come to know it and then the james gunn era will take over but for now for the flash i'll give it a three and a half couch cushions out of five it's actually a pretty good one now you referenced the iffy cgi and i've yep. seen a lot of people complaining about that uh some are saying it's just garbage it's trash it's awful i Based on what I saw in the trailers, I don't know that I'd go that far, but the director has since come out and he says it was done like that on purpose because it's meant to sort of mimic what the Flash sees because you run so fast and move so fast that almost everything he sees is a little distorted. Do you, do no, you believe that or is I, I that a little that's, bunk? That's a pretty good... Uh pretty good uh, excuse the director has made up to try to cover it. I, I like I like his the effort he gives in the explanation there, but no, I don't think that's the case. I could some of it, sure, but there's just a lot of it. It's too much to ignore. I might just go see this one on the big screen. I don't know. I don't and I and DC movies are weird with streaming because sometimes they pop up and sometimes they just don't. Yeah, so. and I mean, the Warner Brothers ones usually pop up on Crave. I guess yeah. that's where most of the Warner Brothers stuff in general pops up. So, yeah. So I would sort of think that would happen. But especially if it's, quote, unquote, a bomb by their standards, it might show up pretty quickly. Like yeah. Fast and Furious 10 is already a week ago came out or more, maybe two weeks ago already came out on home video. Like yeah. that thing's was it was in theaters for th like three weeks. Period. I know. That's yeah. wild. I don't quite get that. The option. Yeah, you're seeing that a lot more where now you can rent. The movies, but they charge like thirty bucks for yeah, that yeah. first run rental. Yeah, uh, it's almost saying, okay, if you don't want to go see it in the theater, you can watch it at home, but it's going to cost you. But it's also the first summer that we've had in quite some time where there's just every week lots of big stuff coming out. So it can it sort of makes sense that a movie will get 
punted out of the theaters quicker. Yeah. But I still thought that it was pretty short run for a, a Fast and Furious movies because they always do so well. All right. Well, and, and a bit later on, we're going to tell you there, it's another semi-busy week at the movies because there are two movies coming out this weekend. Both of them look pretty cool, but it's they're not like big blockbusters because Indiana Jones hits the big screen next week, and we'll talk more about that next week. But up next, want to find out what Jeff thought of the new Samuel L. Jackson show. He finally gets his own show in the MCU. Details in a moment. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And Samuel L. Jackson returns as Nick Fury, this time as the star of an MCU property, a new series on Disney Plus called Secret Invasion. An invasion is here, Rhodey. And we can't even tell who the invaders are. Fury, why haven't you called any of your special friends? This war is one I have to fight. Living on the edge to the end of our lives. Moving the sheepskin telling me lies. Alone. This world is burning, and it was you who lit the match. Tick-tock, Nick. This is personal. You're the most wanted man on the planet. Well, Mama always said I was special. Marvel Studios' Secret Invasion, only on Disney+. Plus. Secret Invasion will be a six-episode series. The first one came out on Wednesday. It's set uh, at least a start in present-day Moscow. I'm sure they'll do a little globe-trotting or space-trotting before it's over. Sam Jackson has been Nick Fury so long that I actually felt pangs of nostalgia when he popped up at the beginning of the show. And I realized we haven't really seen him active in the MCU since, I guess, Captain Marvel. And that was set in the 90s. So on the MCU timeline, he hasn't been a real factor, maybe since Age of Ultron. That's weird. He's not really in the MCU as much as you think. He had a lot of post-credit appearances, but those of obviously were usually pretty short scenes. He was at Tony's funeral in Endgame. He was last seen riding that scroll ship in the post-credit stinger on Spider-Man Far From Home, and those both in 2019. So we're getting a lot of him now, this series, plus the movie The Marvels later this year. And he's great. Jackson is maybe, you know, at the top of the list of actors who make everything better just by being in them. And he's a huge nerd. He loves his superhero stuff. He lobbied to be in Star Wars 25 years ago so he's nerdy but he's also among the coolest guys to ever walk the earth Uh, that's a tough combination to pull off so credit to samuel l jackson for that episode one pretty enjoyable i enjoy the the spy movie style that some of the mcu entities employ and this one certainly does um they're trying to quash this alien uprising and it's set in moscow that kind of qualifies as much as a, a spy thing that an mcu product can we also get the return of kobe smulders as maria hill ben mendelson as talos don Cheadle as Rhodey and Martin Freeman as Agent Ross. There's some newcomers, at least I think they're new, unless I've forgotten some previous appearance. Olivia Coleman as an MI6 agent, Amelia Clark as Guile, one of the Skrulls, and Kingsley Benadir as Gravik, the leader of the Skrulls, or I should say the bad Skrulls, because it seems there's a faction of these aliens bent on taking over the Earth or something, and Fury and friends are the ones that have to stop them. Uh, I will say it's really weird seeing Ben Mendelsohn as a good guy. Uh, might be the first time. I mean, 
I mean, he was in the Captain Marvel movie, I think. Uh, he's been so effective as a bad guy so many times that it's just weird to see him as a good guy. I'm happy for him there, but I'm also going to have trouble trusting him just because he is always such a such an evil guy in whatever he's in. Uh, and that may be by design. Maybe, you know, the Skrulls are shapeshifters, so it's kind of hard to know if anyone is real or an alien. That can be fun, but that can also become tiresome, I think. So we'll see how we feel about that after six episodes. And there'll be double crosses and triple crosses. And so that's where maybe they're like, hey, we should cast Ben Mendelsohn as a good guy because no one will be expecting him to stay good. Who knows? For now, I think it's all fun. I was surprised how excited I was to jump back into an MCU show. Uh, A lot of the shows have been very mediocre as have a lot of the MCU movies the last couple of years. Not saying this won't end up being mediocre, but uh, at least there's been enough of a break on the TV side of things that I'm actually glad to have the MCU back on the small screen on uh, Disney+. Plus. So episode one of Secret Invasion, good stuff so far. Uh, can't wait to see where the other five episodes take us, but I feel like I've said that at the beginning of many of these MCU series, so it's, it's re- the jury <laughs> is out. We won't know until we know. Yes, I mean some of the I liked liked some of the shows a lot. I loved a couple of them, and a couple of them have been disappointing to say the least. And uh, I'm very curious about this though. They they the first five minutes were put posted online. Okay, and uh, I really enjoyed. Like I was hooked immediately. So there you go. I am excited to check that out. Also, got to tell you about what's new at. The movies this weekend, and you must be excited about this, Jeff, because there's a new one from Wes Anderson called Asteroid City. My word, it's hot. It's the desert. What'd you expect? I don't know, but I'm wilting like a cut petunia. Asteroid City from director Wes Anderson. Tonight you're in for a real treat. I don't like the way that alien looked at us. Secure the site. Detain all witnesses. I'm in no hurry. I like the desert. I like aliens. This isn't the beginning of something, is it? We're about to find out. Asteroid City, rated PG-13. In select theaters June 16th. In theaters everywhere June 23rd. So the itinerary of a junior stargazer slash space cadet convention organized to bring together students and parents from across the country for fellowship and scholarly competition is spectacularly disrupted by world-changing events. But listen to this cast. Tom Hanks, Scarlett Johansson, Jason Schwartzman, Jeffrey Wright, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston, Ed Norton, Adrian Brody, Liev Schreiber, Steve Carell, Matt Dillon, Maya Hawk, Willem Dafoe, Margot Robbie, who apparently is in everything these days, and more. I can't believe this cast, and this looks like a very peculiar little film. Are yep. you going? Oh, I got my tickets already. Yep, I'm going uh, I'm on vacation next week, so I got plenty of time to go to the movies. Yeah, I'm excited for this. His last movie a couple of years ago, The French Dispatch, was critically beloved. I didn't really like it that much. I thought it was to Wes Anderson-y. Um, and if you've seen any of his movies, you know what I mean. If you haven't seen any of his movies, uh, basically, he just... I don't know how to describe him. It's like a guy that likes making little uh, play models and stuff like that does it on a giant screen, like full-sized of everything, but everything looks like... He just seems like the kind of guy who would rather be in the basement making models and stuff like that, but instead, he's making movies, so... There's quirky little weird movies, and actors apparently love to work with him, because, I mean, that's a stack cast for, like, the 10th time in a row for this guy. Everyone's... I think it's the first time he's worked with Tom Hanks, though, so that's the big new thing Wes Anderson-y 
as far as this movie goes. It looks really colorful. looks like a lot of fun. It's getting decent reviews. Last check, it was at 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Also new this week, Jennifer Lawrence stars in the raunchy comedy No Hard Feelings. Hi. He'll have a Long Island iced tea. This is the worst iced tea I've ever had. His parents hired me to bring him out of his shell before college. Eating the skinny dipping. What about sharks? I'm very concerned about that. Skip in here right now. How's the kid working out? This is going to be harder than I thought. Don't touch me. Get away from her. You can't outrun the cops. I can't lose my license. No hard feelings in Peter's June 23rd. Read it all. So on the brink of losing her childhood home, Maddie, played by Jennifer Lawrence, discovers an intriguing job listing. Wealthy helicopter parents looking for someone to date their introverted 19-year-old son, Percy, before he leaves for college. To her surprise, Maddie soon discovers the awkward Percy is no sure thing. And it's, it's actually good to see Jennifer Lawrence do some comedy because she's always so much fun in her interviews and whatnot, like she's got a great sense of humor, but almost all of her movies are serious or they're actiony or they're weird. And uh, but she actually gets to show her comic chops and looks like she's having a great time. That's good. I was looking at her IMDb page. I didn't memorize it or anything, but I did note that the last kind of big hit movie she was in was The Last Hunger Games, and that's 2015. It's yeah. like she's 32, but has had like an eight year gap where she hasn't had a big hit movie. That's kind of weird. Yeah. She's been in lots of stuff, but none of them have really no, I guess landed all that huge. The don't look up on Netflix was an Oscar contender a couple yeah. of years ago. So there's that, but that's about it. All right. So those are the two new ones up next. I want to tell you about what I thought of one of the big new ones last week that wasn't on the big screen. It was on your screen at home. Details next. You are listening to the couch potatoes. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. Last week I teed this up, I've been excited about this for months, and now I've finally got a review of the Chris Hemsworth action thriller on Netflix, Extraction 2. Tyler, you were clinically dead nine months ago. But you fought your way back. You came back for this. Why? So I'll just quickly recap this in case you missed the show last week. The first extraction came out in April of 2020. It was about a black market mercenary. He's got nothing to lose. Maybe, is that redundant? Black market mercenary? Whatever. I'm pretty sure I saw that that's how they described it somewhere. And I've stuck with it. But he's got nothing to lose. He's hired to rescue the kidnapped son of an imprisoned international crime lord. And the movie is largely set in a really grungy part of Bangladesh and Hemsworth's Tyler Rake is this one man wrecking machine and he had some really cool action including an 11 minute scene that's made to look like a single take and in this new one they've got a 21 minute action sequence that's meant to look like a single take and Hemsworth says they spent every waking moment for months working on this, which, as you can imagine, took a lot of planning. It took months and months of rehearsals and, and updating the fight sequences throughout the day on sh- as we're shooting, altering, tweaking, changing, go home at night, rehearse again, rehearse the weekends. Um, you know, and a lot of risk involved, a lot of challenges, but the reward was exponential. The scene starts in a prison where they have to fight their way out of what becomes a prison riot and then onto a train where they're being chased by a helicopter full of guys with machine guns. It's crazy. And the new story 
about Tyler Rake. He has to get into this prison to rescue a family from a ruthless Georgian gangster. Georgia the country, by the way, not the state. I liked the first one when I first saw it. I didn't love it at the time, but I went back and watched it again, and I loved it the second time because Hemsworth really gives a great emotional performance as this guy with nothing to lose, but also a man willing to do whatever it takes to either get the job done and do the right thing and the action in both of these movies is crazy. You told me to find the reason I fought my way back. Let's find out. 77% on Rotten Tomatoes, 88% audience score for Extraction 2. So that's better than the first one, which was 67% critics, 70% audience. Now, I did write a review for this, sat down at my computer at home, scripted up something to bring here so I could speak intelligently on the matter. However, it remains sitting on my computer at home. <laughs> I forgot to Oops. send it to myself. That's the worst. I normally drop, whenever I do stuff at home, I always drop it into something in our system or email it to myself yeah. or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I did it. I'm so mad because I was, like, as I sat back, you know, and sort of looked at it, I thought, that's pretty good, McGarry. Yeah. That's pretty good stuff. That's so, the worst. And I didn't realize that until about five minutes before we hit record. So I guess I'm going to have to wing it a little bit here. But I will tell you that the action that the director, Sam Hargrave, has created is, it's really intense. You know, he's a former stuntman. And, uh, the, you know, these stunt guys turned directors are doing such great and creative work with the action genre. We've seen a lot of that in the John Wick series because the directors there have background in stunt stuff. So that's that's cool. And the, the 21-minute action scene, well, the first thing I'll say about it is it actually shows up in the movie sooner than I anticipated so once it was over, I kind of thought, well, where do we go from here? Oh, yeah. Um, but it was so, so good and so well-planned. And there, are, there is some CG and there's some composite or composite work, but it's, it's basically flawless. There are a couple of things where you can kind of go, yeah, that's probably CG, but you let it go because it's a CG helicopter. That's, but the, the first time you see the helicopter, like they're on this train... And a real helicopter pulls up to it and lands on this moving train and guys get out and climb on the train. It's And that's real. And to the director, Sweet. Hargrave, he's right in there with his camera. So he shot the movie. He's right in there getting the shots. And there was also behind the scenes where you could see him on top of this moving train with his camera. And he's spinning around. He's walking backwards. But because he's a stunt guy, and he even says it, you know, because I have that sort of body awareness, I know I can get in there and get the shot without getting in the way. And some of the stuff that he's man he manages to capture is just incredible. There's some behind-the-scenes things on YouTube if you want to look it up. But, yeah, the 21-minute action scene is crazy. Of course, it's not just, like, a, a single take. It's just like the the nineteen the the, the nineteen seventeen. Did that win Best Picture? No, it was nominated. It, uh, it was the same year as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and all that in twenty nineteen. Parasite won. Oh yeah, that's right, that's right. But that movie was filmed to look like a single take, so it's the same thing. Although um, this this scene might have more action than in that entire movie combined. <laughs> um, 
Still, and the CGI, there was, there's a questionable CGI scene in the first extraction. It almost felt like something they added really late. Like they didn't know how to wrap up this one scene, so they just threw in this CG explosion, and it looks really bad. So there was none of that garbage in this movie. And I also like that it remained an emotional story, and we learn more about the emotional weight that Tyler Rake has been carrying. And there's, I would say, some resolution towards the end, which was, which was surprising and wonderful. The bad guys, they're straightforward, but they're good. You know, the family dynamics are complicated. They could have just been generic bad guys for sequel, but I like that we got some of their story too. And I uh, like the, the, just the amount of care that got put into both of these movies. And I want more. And there is indeed a setup for a third movie, and I'm sure we'll see more. I also hope the next one's on the big screen, even for a couple of weeks. Like, they've done this for a few of their movies. They did it with that Knives Out uh, sequel, Glass Onion. Yep. That was on the big screen for two weeks. And then they they had they, they get sold distribution rights. So I don't know why. I have no idea why they wouldn't have tried to put this on the I big screen. I think it's probably an awards thing that... Uh I don't know if some groups, I think the Oscars may have changed it already, may not, but they certainly at one point had a requirement that it had to be on a certain number of screens by a certain date to qualify for the Oscars. Okay. So with Extraction, they're probably like, well, they're not winning Oscars anyways. But if they uh, think they might be able to win some like uh, cinematography or special effects or sound effects Oscars, maybe they will do that at some point. Yeah, it's got to be on the big screen because I just love to see it. You think they at least do it just to make some money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's number one on their movie chart right now, but what does that mean? How the streaming makes its money is still kind of a, a mysterious world that we're all learning about, but it's going to be a mega popular movie, and I would love to see it on the big screen. I will say that after the, the big 21-minute sequence, the movie did become more of a straightforward action film. Still cool, st still fun, but it was just so exciting during that part that it was really hard to maintain that level of thrill but uh, the story could have been a carbon copy of the first one but it's a different story like this time he works he's with a team it's not just him against the world where he's got to escape from behind enemy lines and i also point out it's less violent it's still violent don't get me wrong but the body count i'm sure in the first one was way higher and that first movie overall was just really brutal for its violence the the violence in this one feels like it's more targeted i don't know if that makes sense still cool like i had a lot of fun watching both of them i haven't decided yet which one i like more i think i'd have to watch them back to back and that could be a fun friday night or saturday night so overall lots of fun four couch cushions out of five for extraction two up next oh my goodness the man the myth the legend has his own show on Disney Plus, and we got to tell you what we thought of the first few episodes of the latest season of one of the most mind-bendy shows, not just on Netflix, but anywhere. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and there's a new documentary on Disney Plus about one of the biggest names in comic books who became one of the biggest names in movies, the late, great Stan Lee. Hi, I'm Stan Lee editor of the Marvel Comics Group of superhero comic magazines. We didn't have any money. It was during the Depression, but I would read everything I could get my hands on. And man, I felt as though I could go anywhere. 
What I tried to do was write the kind of stories I would want to read. Our superheroes are the kind of people that you or I would be if we had a superpower. It's really a religious crusade, I like to think. Stan Lee, the documentary, is narrated by Stan Lee, the man. Wasn't really expecting that since he died five years ago, so this must have been sitting on a shelf for quite a while. And like the Arnold doc about Schwarzenegger on Netflix I talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Stan Lee story, as told by Stan Lee, is obviously from the point of view of Stan Lee. Jack Kirby's family wasted no time releasing a statement taking shots at Lee over character credit, which is apparently a long-standing feud. Kirby was one of the original artists for many of the Marvel characters. And to his credit, Lee addresses a feud in the documentary, which the Kirby family statement weirdly does not acknowledge, which frankly kind of hurts their case. Uh, there's a really weird bit where, set sometime in the 80s, Jack Kirby was doing a radio interview, and they got Stan Lee on the phone line with him without Kirby knowing about it, and the two ended up arguing about character credit all over again on the air. Good radio, I guess. Kind of a crappy move by the host, so to sandbag Kirby like that. Lee's argument based basically is that if he thought of the idea, he created the character. Kirby said the character isn't the character until it's been drawn. Lee also got into a fight over the same issue with Steve Ditko about Spider-Man, so it's kind of nothing new. But that archival audio from the radio interview was kind of cool. There's a lot of archival footage over the course of the 90-minute documentary, and I think that's really the main draw. Lee talks about how he got his start in the comic business, a series of events that led to him becoming the boss eventually. A lot of it was he was in the right place at the right time. He was particularly qualified, but they needed someone to help out, and he started making comics. Uh, I identified with that pretty easily. My broadcast career started because a bunch of people quit at the same time, and the radio station was kind of desperate for employees. <laughs> so it's got to take advantage of those opportunities when you can, and it made Stan Lee a millionaire, and it made me not so much a millionaire. <laughs> Three people quit in one week. Really? Yeah. And the boss is like, we desperately need somebody. And he's like, you're hired. Oh, I see you've got radio experience. Can you start tomorrow? So, <laughs> he didn't even <laughs> didn't even look at the resume. Just you seem like you've got a solid head on your shoulders. Come on in. Um, Stanley, of course, one of the great promoters of all time. He's uh, the Ron Popeil of comics, I guess. And he knew it. He loved traveling around, talking up Marvel. Even in the 80s when he was the publisher and the big boss. And he could have just sat in his corner office and cashed a ton of checks. He chored around going to signing events and things like that. I got a friend who met him at a signing thing at a comic book store here in Winnipeg in the mid 80s. Which uh, he was he was a big name. He didn't need to do that. But he did it because he enjoyed it. And it worked. Marvel grew into a giant, of course, the last 15 years, surpassing Lee's wildest dreams on the movie front, uh, becoming the juggernaut that the MCU was and is. Uh, uh, how much longer that will last remains to be seen. Of course, we've been saying the last couple of years have been tougher on the MCU, but the movies still dominate. They maybe don't make as much as they were making, but they're still making an awful lot of money. If you're a huge Stan Lee fan, I don't know that there'll be a ton of new info in this doc. I found it interesting with my limited knowledge of Lee's history going in. I think it's worth a watch if you're a Marvel fan. Good stuff. Nuff said. Three and a half couch cushions out of five for Stan Lee on Disney+. Plus. Okay, I'll have to check that out for sure. And we also want to tell you about a show that first debuted across the pond back in 2011. It launched its sixth season this past week on Netflix, Black Mirror. This guy had been abducting people. So that's what your documentary's about. The details are so awful, it is irresistible. <laughs> 
I love it. Here is how the show is described. A series of standalone dramas, sharp, suspenseful, satirical tales that explore techno-paranoia. Black Mirror is a contemporary reworking of the Twilight Zone with stories that tap into the collective unease about the modern world, particularly regarding both intended and unintended consequences of new technologies and the effect they have on society and individuals. There were two seasons and a special in the UK, and now four seasons and the interactive movie Bandersnatch on Netflix. And you can watch all of it. Uh, like the, the original seasons are there too on Netflix. And with the exception of Bandersnatch, which was okay, neat gimmick, neat idea, ambitious, but ultimately not all that great, Black Mirror overall is excellent stuff. And in this season, I've watched three of the five episodes, and they've been mostly terrific. One is about a woman who starts watching a show that turns out to be about herself, almost in real time. The show is called Joan is Awful. Joan in the real world is played by Annie Murphy, and in the show, she's played by Salma Hayek. The second episode, Loch Henry, I tried to do Loch Henry, because I, that's, I think that's how they were pronouncing it. Loch Henry. It's about a guy who goes back to his hometown in Scotland to shoot a doc. But then he and his girlfriend switch gears, change the topic they were going to do. They decide to do a true crime doc. And what they eventually discover is more horrific and more personal than they could have imagined. And Podrick from Game of Thrones plays the bartender in that episode. So it was nice to see him turn up. Uh, Actor Daniel Portman, by the way. And the third episode I watched is called Maisie Day. It's about a big star who's dogged by paparazzi and about her struggle after she's involved in a hit and run. And then there's an episode co-starring Aaron Paul, Josh Hartnett, and Kate Mara. Haven't watched that one yet. And the fifth one is apparently about a demon of some sort. So I'll check those out soon. Based on the original description I mentioned, exploring techno-paranoia. The show's creator, Charlie Brooker, spoke this week to remind us it's not a tech-is-bad show. It's a show about people and how the ways we use technology... And it imagines possible technologies that might sound like good ideas, but can have disastrous results, which is basically how it goes in the real world, I guess. I mean, pretty much every invention that's meant to do good can also do terrible harm. I will tell you of the episodes I watched, Locke Henry was my favorite. Tells a great story. It's got a great true crime mystery, but the satirical undertones have to do with our infatuation with true crime. The need for constant content to be created to fill all the channels and streamers. In this one, the big streamer is called Streamberry and has a similar logo to Netflix. So far, actually, they've managed to take a couple of shots at Netflix through this season, which is fun. And it also showcases how our own self-interests and greed can overshadow a horrible tragedy. So I'll give you some more details, I think, on the final two episodes next week because we are out of time. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. Don't bother.